Good morning. This week, I am joined by none other than Corey Allen. He is an author, a meditation teacher, and host of the Astral Hustle podcast. He's also the creator of my favorite guided meditation course, Release Into Now, and has completed literally thousands and thousands of hours of mindfulness practice during his life. My intention was to get someone who is of the highest caliber as a meditation expert that I could find and get them to explain the absolute basics on a podcast. The thinking behind that was kind of like if you wanted to learn how to throw a jab and you got taught by Floyd Mayweather, you might actually think, well, his body of knowledge is significantly wider than this, but if he can distill down all of that knowledge into the fundamentals, I'm going to get the best start within this discipline that I can. Hopefully, going to break down some of the barriers and preconceptions that you may have about meditation if you've never done it before. And if you have done it before, Corey is going to be able to explain how to deepen your practice and focusing on the fundamentals, irrelevant of how many hours you've put in, is never a bad thing to do. So here we go. Corey Allen. Corey Allen, welcome to Modern Wisdom. Thank you. Thanks for having me, man. Very good to hear from you. It's really strange to hear your voice for once without there being binaural beats in the background. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could put some on if you'd like. <laughs> that would be funny. Yeah, the um, the meditation course releasing to now that you did through Aubrey Marcus has been, um, I think I can pretty much recite it now verbatim. I could I could probably do it back and give my best Corey Allen impression and actually <laughs> actually give it back to you. That's funny is that I would probably barely recognize that. I I have a vague memories of what's in it at this point, but mm-hmm. um you know how that goes. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So a lot of listeners will have heard me dance around the topic of mindfulness practice and and meditation over the last few months and I think what I, what I really wanted to do was get someone like yourself who has a wealth of experience with practice and understands it from the ground floor up and really just start to unpackage it. I think meditation for a lot of people is like kind of like maybe a stretching routine. It's something that they know that they probably should be doing, but that it sounds like there's maybe quite a lot of barriers to entry it's maybe a little bit complicated. They're not sure if they can complete the practice on their own. And for a common person who hasn't ever been exposed to mindfulness or meditation before, I do think that it can be, um, it can be a daunting prospect to go into something which is, which is from the outside looking in very complex. I don't know whether in your circles now, whether you know, whether you um, regularly interact with anyone who doesn't do mindfulness practice anymore, but certainly on my side, there is, there's a lot of people who I think would really benefit from it. So hopefully today we can, um, we can explain and we can unpack just what mindfulness practice is and, and how everybody can benefit from it. Sure. Yeah. And firstly, I mean, most people I know, I would say do not 
have a meditation practice. Is that true? Wow. Yeah, yeah. Just because, um, you know, I don't know, maybe 10 to 15% max of the people I know do. Okay. And um, let me just identify the problem from the outset. You know, there's a lot of confusion and people have resistance towards getting into meditation because, as you said, it might seem intimidating or confusing or something unreachable or unattainable. The reason for that, in my opinion, is, and I wrote about this a bit in my book, was that meditation is an experience. It's an experiential thing. It's a, a you know, internal thing of the mind, right? It's not something you can describe. And so the example I use in my book is that if you were to, you know, from a, from like, as if you were looking out of a camera, describe the narrative of someone standing up in their room, going into the kitchen, getting a cup of coffee, one could write that description. And then another person could read that description and get the general notion that there's a person in a room and they're getting up and they're going into their kitchen, whatever that may look like, mm -hmm. and they're getting a coffee. Now, that's an easy picture to paint in one's mind. And your brain will fill in all of the gaps and pieces of the story that uh, you, you need as connective tissue to create that narrative in your imagination. But the problem with uh, meditation is, is that so now take this same uh, situation yes. and... Now, write out what the experience of a person standing up in their room and going into their kitchen and making a cup of coffee is so clearly that you as the reader can know the first person point of view feeling with all of the sensory input and all of the contents that enter the consciousness of someone who's doing that to express that experience to another person is so impossible that uh, it, it's, it's really, you know, ultimately can't even be done. It's it would be an infinite in, amount of information, right? It would be an, exactly. an overwhelming read. Yeah, exactly. So take a, take a hundred years of people who aren't great writers, even all trying to get at and writing about the thing, the experience, yeah. including all of the fat and all of the metaphysical, uh, nonsense and, uh, you know, you know, all the stuff that, that can go along with that. Everyone's trying to describe an intangible experience. And so there are just mountains and mountains of descriptions about in this intangible experience, yeah. which have no meaning inherently because they are relative only to the person that wrote them because they're writing about their experience. So whenever an, a, an individual who is perhaps only hearing about the idea or, in, or only become interested in meditation, goes to read a book about it or goes to look for some type of instruction. And they find 500 words on some, you know, bozo trying to describe an experience. It is inherently very confusing and it's off-putting. You yeah. know, it would be off-putting to me as well. So I think that the idea, you know, the best, that's, that's the, the problem. I think the solution you know, to break that barrier of entry is to not write or necessarily talk as much about the experience, but to talk about methods that can lead people to have that experience themselves. The path, not the destination, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think it's very prohibitive because as you say, everyone's experience, especially of mindfulness, which is inherently so unique and individual to the person, their brain 
their particular brain setup, where they go to when their thoughts begin to quieten. Um, there's more, I think I'm right in saying there's more connections in one square centimeter of human brain matter than there are stars in the galaxy. And when you're mm-hmm. trying to describe an experience manifesting from something as complex as that, it's, um, yeah, you're right. It leads to a lot of information, a lot of disinformation as well. And neither of that's really helpful in, in getting people to buy into the process, so to speak. Uh, yeah. And you've hit it right there. I mean, what is helpful? That's what I always look at, man, is like whether I'm talking about something more, uh, ordinary or I'm talking about something more experimental or theoretical, like I, I don't really talk about it unless it's useful because why just add fat to the conversation yeah. in general? It's yeah. just in life really, but, yeah, for sure. but especially within things that are, that are intangible and, and transient. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Would you say that there's a, a shift at the moment towards meditation and mindfulness becoming a little bit more sort of newsworthy, a little bit more um, prevalent in day-to-day discourse? It's, it's being being covered more commercially, I suppose. It certainly seems like it. I mean, particularly over the last five years, I think there's been a real awareness. And over the last, I think, two or three years, I started seeing meditation and mindfulness on the cover of magazines at the checkout at the grocery store yeah. you know and uh now i think there have been people who have you know, a lot of visibility who are uh you know, promoting it and what have you and i do think it's becoming a much more mainstream uh type of idea and practice because it works yeah. and i think people are figuring it out and also i think there is a uh, you know, en- enough of the badly translated Eastern wisdom <laughs> from the sixties and seventies in America anyway, it's yeah. kind of, it's had time to kind of fall away and age and die, whether it be a generational thing or just that people finally shook it off. And there's a real nice, reasonable, secular approach to mindfulness and meditation because it doesn't need any religious context. You don't there's need the theology do. or the, the ideology behind it, right? Y- yeah. And also, I mean, the, that that also presupposes that there was any to begin with yes. in, in a lot of these schools. You know, some schools of of Eastern thought contain meditation as a practice, and those philosophies contain spirituality. But if you look at some, you know, aspect, there there are certainly unquestionably a lot of uh, other schools which have zero, real sp- you know, quote unquote spiritual aspect to them at all. And I think one doesn't you know, need or, or really shouldn't seek, I think, uh, what a person would think of when they hear the word spirituality through meditation, because really you're just seeking your own mind. Yeah. And unless you are looking to your own mind as your spiritual master, which, I mean, I actually have no problem with that, mm-hmm. but, you know, <laughs> then, but just be clear about what's happening. So anyway, the point is, is that having a, a secular, uh, you know, approach to and path to mindfulness and meditation, I think is, has been, has been laid out more and more clearly. And that's what people are responding to it. I think it makes it a lot more inclusive by doing it in that way. It permits a much wider, you say we're in an increasingly secular society. We need to, if, if mindfulness practice is going to be widely adopted, there, there needs to be some principles which everyone can follow. And it can't be, these are principles. If you're from the West, these are principles. If you're from a, a particular uh, religious background or a particular um, strata of 
society, that that's not very helpful, is it? And I think you're right. Exporting for a secular society um, is a, a much more inclusive way of getting yeah, people and, started. And interestingly, I'm, I'm not so sure that we're in an increasingly secular society. I think that you know the practice of mindfulness and meditation has become more secular within its own yeah. within itself. Um, do you find, or do you think that, from what you observe, that societies in general are becoming more secular? I definitely say so in the UK. Mm-hmm. I think I think so. Uh, I can't speak for anywhere else. That's the bulk of my experience. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people are becoming very disenchanted with what would have been the old guard mainstay of. Um, what communities are built around a lot of, uh, there was a really interesting point that came up on a Joe Rogan podcast not long ago where he said that he thinks one of the reasons that team sports and uh, community sports like CrossFit are getting such prevalence at the moment is that previously the community that people would have had on a Sunday when they go to church and that sense of belonging to a group, that group identity is falling away more increasingly. Now, again, I can't speak for the UK, for the USA or anywhere else, but in the UK, I, I certainly think people are being more forward thinking and less, less um, spiritually minded in the traditional sense of the word. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I'm, would you, would you say that it's different in your experience? Well, it's just hard to tell, you know, like I can the sample size, <laughs> right? It's like, I can observe my subjective take on it from the input and the things I receive. Uh, of course, you know, like I wouldn't have thought that Trump would be the president of America either. So, <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I, that, that really collapsed my paradigm of, of speculative, uh, trust for myself. So it is hard. I, to tell. Corey Allen can never trust me, Corey Allen ever again. <laughs> That's for sure, man. <laughs> Officially, so you know, I don't, I don't really know. I, I feel like, at the very least, conversations about, uh, you know, the human condition without any spirituality or you know monotheistic spirituality yeah. anyway have become more public. That oh, seems to be the case, um, and I don't, you know, this is we could get into a, a whole different conversation about, uh, you know. Middle East and, and uh, Islam and things like that. I don't, you know, because the the change, and I think that a lot of this tension that is being caused with world, you know, religions of the world and, and in society right now is because largely to do with the internet, because the internet is creating, and this also feeds in meditation, is that, man, it's like this mirror of the collective consciousness that people weren't ready for. Yeah. So, a hundred years ago or even 50 years ago, you were on your small area of town or whatever, doing your thing, minding your own business. And you knew the people around you and you knew the, the worldviews and experiences and, and themes of what these people thought around you. And that was sort of the scope of your own kind of nicely, nicely insulated, right? Right, right. And just simply unaware of the complexities and the, just with the amount of people in the rest of the world. Yeah. But I really believe that the complexity in a certain degree, it becomes a real frustration for humans. Like whenever there's too many things out there that uh, whenever there are more things out there in the experiential world than an individual can keep in their mind at this at once, they get really frustrated like an angry ape or something. Definitely. Because they're like, ah, I'm being overwhelmed by the chaos of nature and I don't want to submit to it. Yes. Although once you do, you'll 
be much happier. But just look at traffic. You know, it's like if you're on a highway and there's one car, you're all good. But if if it's if it's gridlock <laughs> and people are cutting you off, you get pissed off. Yeah, it's a complexity issue, right? And so I think that people naively took to the internet. And as particularly whenever social media kicked off, that all these voices, everyone has this voice that they can spit out into the ether and have, you know, cause a reflection. And so you look out into the Internet and you just see thousands and thousands and thousands of people every day. And I think it has really done something to the connective subconscious of all people, because now, you know, if you ever thought that you were significant, well, just go on the Internet. You're going to feel very, very small, very, very fast. Right, right, right. Exactly. So that causes a lot of tension, man. And uh, that's one of the reasons I think meditation has become more popular is because that awareness of all the other people creates the void and oblivion that an individual has a very hard time ignoring whenever it's literally talking to them. (laughs) The oblivion of (laughs) the sea of humanity of of the entire world is... They're apparent in speaking at them directly. Yeah. You cannot shut it down. And so it begs the question of like one's own existence and one's own, uh, you know, the meaning within their life. I wonder if there's been an increase in existential crisis from, oh, yeah. from this. <laughs> this oh, yeah. Man. Overwhelming amount of information coming in. Yeah, I think you're right. A lot of the time, especially when I started, so I started my meditation practice and the state and trait changes, which we'll get into in a in a second. For me, the most noticeable thing was just being able to create that second moment breath between something occurring or me having a thought and me reacting to it. Yeah. Now rolling it a little bit further down the line, there's uh, that's kind of a <laughs> that's definitely not the end point. But even just having that little bit of a second extra to consider what has happened and notice it and interject makes such a um such a profound change day to day in how you deal with situations i think you're right if if there was a little bit more mindfulness only a little bit more mindfulness worldwide there would be an awful lot less uh and antagonistic problems a lot less aggression between people a lot less misunderstanding as well because Mm -hmm. the narratives that people are attaching to my experience, his experience, their story, my story. I think a lot of that would be viewed with a much, a much more open set of eyes. Yeah. And just the causality of one person's short-sighted reflexive expression of momentary negativity or frustration is so immense that I think it's hard for people to really conceive of because, you know, one person has some dumb response to something and they put out some, you know, a nasty comment or they treat someone else negatively in the moment, then it's literally like passing the hot potato of suffering onto someone else. <laughs> you know, and that person holds that and then they're tossing up in the air yeah. and then they're... Who's going to be on there. the receiving end next? Exactly. And it's literally like, I've thought about this with illnesses too, but like it's the same thing with anger or some you know, negative emotion like that is that... How long has that shockwave been going on? It's a pathogen, like, this, yeah. It's just moving it, through. Yeah, like did, when I got a cold, you know, a couple of months ago, and I was thinking, like, did, did like Napoleon have this cold? Yeah, like, where did this you know? start? Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. right. How long is this getting passed around? And <laughs> I mean, the so anger funny. thing, the the negative emotion thing, is the same thing. And I'm a big fan of not repression, but of a a thing I call 
uh, or I have heard called and just end up calling. I'm not sure where, but, um, you know, uh, turning poison into medicine or they also another term for it is stopping the wheel of of karma. Uh, and that's just like whenever you get something from somebody being able to be high minded enough to not pass it on. And yeah. that's like snuffing out those yeah there's those the, there's negative the, the, the forest the forest fires kind of been burned out ahead of it and it doesn't go any further so to speak right um right. so can you give us a little bit of background to your mindfulness practice what you've started doing and and where you're at now yeah sure um let's see i started really uh really young um I'm 36. I started, you know, in my mid-teenage years. Essentially, in the 90s, there wasn't a lot of information around, around as far as really available. The internet was sort of just uh, sizzling as, as opposed to being a raging fire as it is now. And man, you know, just my environmental experience and also the happenstance or bad luck or good luck of how I saw the world, however you'd like to look at it, created a, an immense amount of suffering and anxiety, you know, an emotional suffering w- within myself. And the environment that I you know, was in was only compounding that. And I had a lot of energy, and not in the metaphysical sense, but just in a sense of vitality at yep. the time. And uh, I've gotten older, so that's gone away. Now. <laughs> I, I, I had a lot of energy, man. And, and I realized that if I... You know, I needed to find a way to put that in a direction or else it had the potential to be bad, you know. And so since I, I don't know, I just had an intuition about that and I got very much into philosophy, you know, Western Eastern philosophy at a young age, kind of by chance, really. And I began, after I was reading about, um, you know, I began reading Nietzsche a lot whenever I was yep. in my mid-teen years and I recognized it, you know, for the first time. I thought, oh, this is like, this is how I think. It's not what I think per se, but it's how. It's the way that my mind, the conduits of my mind kind of connect. And then I moved over to Eastern philosophy and I was, oh, this is more of what I think and how I think in some ways. You know, much more themes of equanimity and and peacefulness and kind of a universality and also a lack of emphasis on the individual. Like, I don't think we're special. And I appreciate the... The, and like take that you know with a grain of salt but yeah. I, I mean I don't mean that like that in the nihilistic way I mean that in the sense that like we're all just these momentary little uh, wiggly fleshy you know worms of of conscious awareness that are here and then are not here and like there's nothing wrong with that the fact that that's the case it's it's a beautiful thing it's like reality is, is you know in human existence is equally beautiful as it is bleak yes. and people clinch up with that because they think no no life sh- should be seen as this like happy ending disney Flawless. type fairy tale yeah and it's like yeah it it is man but it's also it's like you got to acknowledge the 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 sour and the sweet and sour or else the sauce doesn't have the twang yeah. like the the reason for life is the twang right yeah anyway so yeah man uh i appreciate the idea of in you know in, in buddhism of there not really being a soul or anything like that that's it resonates well with me that impermanence so, Right, right. And so uh, another thing, you know, as a side note, in my book, I, I write about the upside of impermanence because people think of impermanence and they're always like, well, what a bummer, you know, everything rots and everything just yeah. dissolves. And so I uh, I point out there that in 
for their for I call it the upside of impermanence. I'm like for there to be things to always rot, there must always be things coming into existence. That's that's the you know if you just take a few steps back and see both sides of that polarity, then you can catch your breath a little bit. Without the yang, <laughs> without the yang, there is no yin, right? Right, right. So anyway, man, I I uh, you know just began uh, reading these Eastern philosophies and what have you, and found meditation within those and began practicing it myself. There was no instruction books or anything like that. I'm going to uh, guess. I'm going to guess that at this stage it was a much more, as you said before, the wishy-washy sort of difficult to follow, reported experience books of of meditation as opposed to some more of the uh, uh, laid out uh, formative process based ones that we've got today. Yeah, yeah. There definitely wasn't a lot of like process based things, but you know anything from Alan Watts to. Robert Anton Wilson and you know Tim Leary and some stuff like that. But then uh, also at the same time, I was reading things like Suzuki and like extreme hardcore Zen, like where they Zen stick style, where you sit there and meditate and they whack you on the back with a stick, just like this is now, this is happening now. <laughs> Why, you know, don't, there's the moment, there's the moment, and yeah. don't break your concentration. You know, so I definitely was getting uh, two sides, but really. Uh, being kind of autodidact by nature, I went to it just thinking, okay, here's some ideas and I'm going to go experiment with these and see what happens. And so it became, you know, meditation became my fortress. You know, I realized that during that period of, of suffering and being feeling like I was not interlocking with the world and my environment and surroundings, the inner world, my inner life became very rich because I was able to meditate and feel you know, and really consciously, intellectually separate my experience with, okay, no matter what's happening outside of my body, outside of my skin, internally, none of that stuff can affect me here. And none of the, you know, whatever you'd like to call it, the, the, just the, the pain and suffering that I was feeling mm-hmm. in that time, like none of that has a place within my, my mind. Yeah. My mind became my sanctuary. Have you read um, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl? I have, yeah. Yeah, so man's final bastion is his ability to choose his response in any given situation, right? It's right. That, it's the, the, the thought that your ability to respond and your thoughts within your mind are yours and they'll always be yours. Mm-hmm. I, except for uh, I, I love that idea, but I also can believe in de- determinism. <laughs> so, okay. free goes. so you know, yeah, you know, man, it's what, difficult. But, it's 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 kind of it's interesting, isn't it, to hold both of those things at the same time? Yeah, yeah. It's like I think that my you know uh, ability to choose my choices is really beautiful. <laughs> yeah, that's a very very good way to put it. So, right, man. So I was doing the, you know, into meditation like that. And it eventually just became this very fundamental aspect of my, my existence and carried on. So even whenever my life began to balance, probably much because of meditation in a lot of ways, um, it, uh, just continued on with the practice and I just continued exploring. I'm a very inquisitive little critter and I, uh, I'm always Spent a lot of time, especially in my early 20s, like trying to find the edges of reality in my own perception and like what my consciousness was. And I did a lot of experimentation uh, in, in a lot of different realms trying to understand that. And what's interesting 
from my point of view now uh, was in that time, you know, especially in my late teens and, you know, doing a lot of uh, psychedelics and meditation, just going as far deep as I could uh, with these things and you know, thought experiments is that I went through all of that and then really calmed down with that because I found the edges. I played in the middle of the street. I was able to see what was going in on in the yard across the street. Yeah. And I was able to sit back and then begin to reflect on what I had experienced. Mm. And so I had 10 years of reflecting on my experience and continuing to unpack and contemplate those things. And then within the last five years, the the new wave of interest in psychedelics and, and consciousness and all this stuff really kicked up. So it was a really curious uh, unfolding in society for me because I was like watching all of these people who were just getting into this um, way of thinking that I had kind of uh, known felt, for so long, right? You were yeah, I had known so and, and I, I'd felt comfortable with my comprehension of it for so long and had time to reflect on. So it was very interesting. So it was good timing. It was good timing. A lot of people getting into that uh, set of interests and then being able to arrive with a reflected point of view whenever it was needed. Do you feel that, do you feel fortunate to be in a position where you can assist people at the, you know, riding the crest of this wave, so to speak, as there's a, a big uptake in, um, in mindfulness practice and a big interest in it? Well, man, I mean, I don't really like put myself in my own image of the greater picture yes. a lot of times. I look at it all as if you and I were sitting in a bar or something talking and you said you were interested in meditation and I was like, oh, cool, man. And we could talk about it for a little while and I'd tell you whatever I thought. And essentially, I would be telling you my experiences, not answers, but just ideas and thoughts and things I experienced and what I thought about them. And how they were helpful to me. Yeah. And if you know, if you find any of that helpful, then that's fantastic, and you can take that with you and add that to your map. I look at doing it on a large scale the exact same way. You know, I don't look at like, oh, I am able to. And I, I totally take your point, and I appreciate what you're saying. But just as far as the way that I interact with it all, it's it's not, not a like, self brand. It's not steaming in as Corey Allen, meditation master, third degree, <laughs> right. third third degree black black belt. Sort of right, thing, yeah. right, right. I think, I think, but well, again, that speaks to the practice, right? That speaks to the detachment from the ego and so on and so yes. forth. Yes. Um, so that was probably a bit of a trick question, actually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you even tricked yourself because yeah, it sounded like you just realized it. Tricked everyone, yeah. Um, <laughs> so I want to try and start from the absolute basics, the most important principles that you think that you can explain to someone for when undertaking a mindfulness practice. Can you start at the bottom and, 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 uh, and take it from there? Yeah, sure, man. So you, you touched on something that was very valuable up at the, the front of our conversation, which was, you know, not everything in life has to be this pursuit where you, <laughs> you become a master. You think about how many things in life, like how many things are you a master at in life? Probably zero. maybe zero. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Zero, yeah. There, there might be you know a couple of things that you're really good at. Most people have things that they're naturally really good at. But there, this is another part of the confusion of meditation is that people think 
I've got to do this and become a master of it. And it's Mm -hmm. like, no, that's not really the point. The point is to doing as much of the practice that you need to feel a balance and a change that works for you. And so I stress for people, like you don't need to be meditating on the side of a mountain for 10 hours a day for the rest of your life. What you need to do is just enough to create that extra little space, that mindfulness gap to where you can recognize your own uh, flow of consciousness, your own flow of thoughts enough to not get into uh, a, a chain of reactive behavior and just be able to respond to your own life as opposed to being carried away uh, in your reactive programmed you response. Ob- you observe, not attach, right? You right, watch right, it right. happen rather than attaching yourself to it. Yeah, and the dance is, of course, when you do it enough to where that all becomes uh, synchronous. Yes. And so the, you know, the, the best thing, man, for someone who's just starting is don't make it a big deal. That's super important is don't make it a big deal because it's not a big deal. You know, you, you meditate every night while you're sleeping. The only difference is you're just going to try and do it while you're awake a little bit, right? So you just sit in a chair, maybe on, on your couch or lay down, whatever is the most comfortable for you, and just close your eyes and put all your phone and all that stuff away and just relax your body and take 10 deep breaths Nothing unnatural. Just allow your chest to expand and and and, uh, and exhale. And uh, when you're doing that, you know, with your eyes closed, just kind of point your attention to your chest. No big deal. Just rising and falling. And just you just try ten breaths, and then perhaps you'll try and count them. So if you count one breath in and one exhale and two breaths in and two exhales, and just try and get to 10, and see if you can count 10 breaths. And most people can't. Most people they get distracted mind. at three yeah, or four. Right, right, right. What's they're for breakfast? Mind. I wonder I wonder if the cat's been let out yet. I right, is to the do. cat for breakfast? Yeah, yeah there's nothing, yeah. <laughs> you know, thoughts get weird, but there's nothing wrong with that at all. And if uh, if one becomes distracted, whenever you realize that you're distracted, just start at one again with this breath counting. And if you can sit there and do that for five minutes in the morning or in the evening before you go to bed, you'll notice a difference in your daily life. If you can do that for 10 minutes, you'll notice a bigger difference and so on and so on. And I think that it's important for one not to try and sit and meditate for half an hour for the first time. Yeah. Because the antsiness is going to be you know, pretty unbearable. If you think about your hands on a biological level. You're so used to just messing with things constantly, always with your phone, on a keyboard, with your TV remote, you're making food, you're, you're just always doing something. That to not do something, you almost feel like phantom limb syndrome. Yeah. You're like, oh, my hands, right? So I think that you know, after five minutes or so, you try it a couple of times, you get over the fidgets. And an interesting thing happens, begins to happen, is that whenever you're, you know, the the mind is reflected in the body and vice versa and so the chatter of the brain begins to calm down the chatter of the body begins to calm down and wherever you can get to where you can just rest your hands on yourself while you're breathing or just wherever you'd like to rest them 
then you'll notice that like there's this connection between the clarity of mind and your ability to let go and just release your body and relax it. Yeah. And it should not be a feeling of like where you're you're shrink wrapped and you're claustrophobic within your own skin. It's not being it's tight, right? It's yeah, just literally like letting go and allowing your body to just be there. Yeah, I think it's a, a I, really really good analogy what you said about not trying to steam in at half an hour to begin with. The analogy for those people who go to the gym, you wouldn't walk into the gym and try and pick up try and deadlift two hundred and fifty kilos. Right, <laughs> you, you you start off and it's progressive overload, right? Right, you, right. Where can I go today? Can can it go six? Can it go seven? Can it go ten? Can we go? So yeah, so you're exactly. you're you're sitting. You're hopefully now starting to develop a practice where the movement in the body and the the anxiousness and the agitation in the body has started to calm. And then where are we going right. from there? So from there, then you'll you'll want to try and make that. Uh, consecutive. So you want to make sure, you know, you can try that a couple of times here and there when it appeals to you or most people reach for that practice whenever they're feeling extreme amounts of stress and looking for some type of solution to it or anxiety or whatever it might be. I will tell you is that people often look for optimizing solutions whenever they're in negative circumstances. You know, if you're feeling sick, people try and, oh, I better eat right and, you know, not, you know, hit the bar or something like that because I don't want to get myself even more ill uh, or if I'm really stressed, I want to meditate. But this is the net gain aspect of meditation is, is very, very valuable. If you're going in for a job interview or an important conversation or, you know, a first date or something like that, meditating beforehand is very valuable because you'll, if you're feeling fine and you meditate anyway, you'll be that much more calm and focused and present for the interaction. It shouldn't be and hitting. It shouldn't be hitting the antidote button. It's the it's the, <laughs> right. the, the multivitamin button, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so the beautiful thing in the real, real deep uh, result that one will find from meditation is doing it consecutively. So after you, you know, perhaps someone tries meditating here and there whenever they need it, and they realize, oh, this is kind of helping me. This is I notice a little shift in my brain. Maybe I f- you feel a little little high or something afterwards. And uh, I, I used to back, you know, was looping back around to my teenage years. I used to read until I felt high. Like that was the that was how I knew I could stop. Is that like philosophy. a runner? Is that like a runner's high? But for yeah, yeah, for it's like, That's how like I yourself. knew that my brain was stretching. It's like if I read like enough of this idea of this concept until I feel stoned, I know that (laughs) synapses are popping, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, but you you will feel a a bit of, or often a person will feel a bit of uh, difference in their consciousness after meditation. And that's really a awareness of your own awareness. You're you're talking immediately after a practice or around a practice there, right? Yeah, yeah, you'll you'll find this right after a practice or even during. You can feel this like, oh, I feel a bit different, you know, and it's it's this awareness of your awareness. You're more present, and so there's more information that your nervous system is taking in because it's more aware, and there's more detail and nuance in your experience of life. One hundred percent, and that becomes a a orientation, a permanent orientation once you practice meditation consecutively. Just as the analogy you use with stretching, if you stretch, you know, I, I like to run a lot. And if you were to, to to never stretch, that would be bad. Obviously, you would hurt yourself. Um, but, but 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. if you stretch once a week and you're running 20 miles a week, you're going to not feel well. But if you stretch every day, it becomes easier and easier to stretch each time. Yes. And then it becomes vital and crucial. Uh, this is the same thing with meditation. You know, if you meditate once, it is helpful for the moment, but you're going to find yourself back in the place that you were. And uh, then if you do it every day, you're just going to feel this inherent flexibility that becomes a part of your daily experience. Yeah, I think one of the things that you touched on was a point I really wanted to try and get across to people, which is state versus trait changes mm -hmm. in your experience. So state changes would be those which you experience during and immediately around doing some meditation practice, whether it be five or 20 minutes or half an hour. And trait changes are the ones which you would notice throughout your day-to-day -day, uh, experience away from the practice, a significant period of time away from the practice. I think right. a lot of the time people expect and they look for the trait changes first, which I'm, I've meditated for five days in a row, but I still got angry because my husband was late for dinner or whatever it might be. Whereas the the state changes for me occurred very quickly. I felt very, very calm quite quickly after spending 10 to 15 minutes calming the mind. Mm -hmm. Is there, mm -hmm. is, is there a, um, is there a level of time or amount of time under tension that where people will begin to notice trait changes? Yes, I would say, you know, typically the the word on that is around two weeks is where you really begin to feel those those deeper changes. And that could have something to do with neuroplasticity shifts and kind of retraining the actual uh, framework of the brain and the mind and what have you. And uh, it does seem to be around that time that people notice that. However, I would like to make just a clarification in that, you know, we're still like everyone's still human, right? And so to begin a meditation practice with the, thinking that like, all right, here's what's cool is I'm never going to feel angry again. <laughs> you know, It's like, this is going to be cool. I'm, I'm going to do this and I'm going to be a Zen master. Going to be completely immune to all emotions, both negative and right. positive, and just turn into like Brandon Stark in Game of Thrones at the moment, just like this turnip in the corner of the room. Yeah, <laughs> By the way, that's one of my favorite, uh, you know, UK sayings is turnip. Is close to <laughs> I, I, I'm glad you said it. I, I like uh, tennis a lot. And whenever I hear Andy Murray yell, call himself a turnip, it always makes me laugh. <laughs> I didn't even know that he does that. That's... <laughs> That's such a Scottish thing to call yourself as well. Like, well. Of all of the things that you could have called yourself, Andy, because there's lots of people in the crowd calling you other things and it's not, yeah. a, it's not a turnip, but that's, <laughs> that's hilarious. But yeah, like that Brandon Stark thing for anyone who's watching Game of Thrones at the moment, it makes me laugh because that, that kind of complete detachment from everything that's going on is kind of like the 30 seconds. If someone was to walk in after I've done a, uh, half an hour meditation practice within 30 seconds of me finishing. That's how I feel like I would respond. Like just completely like, I don't know, just detached and out of it and slowly trying to bring myself back to reality. But it's, uh, mm. it was, it was so funny when he, uh, when, when that started to come up in the, in the game of Thrones thing and a couple of my friends who 
do uh, yoga and meditation as well mentioned the same thing. They said, do you think that Brandon's actually got any uh, green sight or whatever it's called, or has he just been absolutely pounding the meditation for the last year <laughs> while he's been in the wheelchair? <laughs> now, see, this is funny to me because uh, I actually don't find, I, I suppose I did for a while, but uh, I don't find to feel more removed and uh, internal after my meditations. I actually feel more interwoven with the external world afterwards. That's interesting. I'd, mm-hmm. I'd definitely say, as someone who's done a, a consistent practice for about two to two and a half years now, or maybe, yeah, maybe two years, I, w- I wouldn't say that that's my, that that marries with my experience. Not yet. I wouldn't, I'm, br- I, I wouldn't I'm reflecting a, back here. I'm thinking, you know, I've, I think I've been meditating about 20 years. Yep. And reflecting back, I think that, there was a long period of time where I would feel, yeah, I've always been a big coffee drinker. So my routine for, for years was like meditating and then drinking a giant, you know, pounding a giant coffee. And, <laughs> that's yeah. like, that's like taking the, taking the dip down before getting on the roller coaster right to the top. Right. Right. <laughs> right. It's like a slingshot. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, but no, I'm now thinking back. Yeah, I do. I do think, uh, I recall there being a long stretch, uh, uh like that. And eventually I think my interest after my, you know, a decade or whatever, or 15 years, my body seemed to finally calm down and I was able to just accept my own existence a bit more. And, uh, you know, that's a, that's a tricky one. Yep. But I think that these days, not to fast forward too much, but these days my meditation is very much, um, just watching and, in my meditation, and I described this kind of recently, uh, is that I think that a observing you know, the outer world and the inner world while also simultaneously observing that from a bird's eye view above, all three at the same time, yep. that to me is what my meditation is like. It's an, it's an interlocking of looking at what's out there, looking what's inside, and then watching those two things meet. Wow. I think watching. I think there's definitely a lot to be said for early on in your practice. There's a lot of unexplored territory internally. And mm-hmm. I can imagine I can imagine that that may be some of the carryover immediately after your practice that mm-hmm. where have I just been? What was I just thinking about? How come my mind's so quiet? you know, as you, as you slowly come round to back, back into the physical realm, so to speak. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's a wonderful distinction, man. Yeah, absolutely. So what would you say in terms of once, once people have begun to build up a, a practice, hopefully consistency, so optimal frequency daily? Yeah, you know, daily. And I would say I probably meditate five days a week mm-hmm. and it's just really important to not make it a chore, you know, because people will find a way to resent it <laughs> and find a way to, to be able to pass it up if it becomes a thing they, they feel like they have to do. Yes. People just don't like being told what to do, even by themselves. We're not our own slaves, right? Yeah. One of my, <laughs> one of, one of the, uh, the guys who's on the podcast all the time, Yusuf says, meditation isn't something we have to do. It's something we get to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but, I think eventually it becomes 
to me anyway, it becomes like brushing your teeth. You know, it's like you, you don't even think about it. Oh, I hope not. You know, you don't even think about it. You just do it as a part of your your daily experience. And it's not a I don't know many people that are like, oh, God, I got to go brush my teeth again. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. it's like it's a good thing, you know, and it helps helps you stay fresh and and, and uh, crispy clean. And, and meditation is no different. So we've got optimal frequency at between daily to five times a week. And yeah. what about optimal session length once you've worked up your tolerance? Yeah, man, I think that once you've become more accustomed to meditating something longer than five or 10 minutes, I would say a 20 to 30 is really a great target zone because that way you're not hacking away an hour of your day or 45 minutes of your day. You're not becoming bored to the experience. It's enough to really have a deep effect yet not make one psychologically feel like they're devoting too much time to it. Yeah, And I know is that may even sound a little weird, but just the nature of human time management and psychology and, and all that stuff, I, I think it's sort of an important thing to keep in mind. And um, you know, to me, I generally, there's something magical about the 20 minute zone, 20 minute mark to me. And I've spoke with other people who are deep meditators and they've reciprocated that idea. So I think the 20 to 30 minute timeline is nice because, or time zone rather, because you can get to that spot where you're just like a tree blowing in the breeze without a name or identity. And then, you know, then in, kind of embrace that watching period for a while and experience just consciousness, yeah. just awareness, man. I think, and, I think there's certainly, I, I bought my mum, uh, listeners will know what I'm going to say. I bought my mum headspace at the start of the year because I wanted, she's a, a Reiki master of 10 years and has done a lot on the esoteric side, big in Pilates, big in yoga, but never actually done any formal mindfulness practice. So I thought, right, okay, headspace. Um, and she likes doing five and 10 minute meditations. And I, I sat down and had a chat with her and said, one of the things that I brought up was that in a five or a 10 minute meditation for me personally, the first 50% or more, the first five minutes to 10 minutes is just quietening the mind. Mm -hmm. When you're doing, there's a kind of like an overhead that needs to be paid. There's a price, there's an entry fee that you need to pay to get to the state. I suppose that over time, would you say that you are able to drop into deeper, uh, deeper um, states of meditation more quickly, kind of like dropping into REM sleep more quickly, I suppose? Yeah. I mean, in my experience, yes, yes. And I think that it's a, the, the analogy you're drawing is a good one. It's essentially like warming up. You know, you're yeah. like, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. Get, you've got all this stuff going on and, and God knows what's happening in your day and in your life and in your mind at that time, or even just where the you know, neurobiology of your brain is at, at that moment. I mean, there's some days where I feel more fragmented and there's some days where I feel, uh, quite sharp. And so, you know, it, it just, whatever the day calls for, it's kind of what, in my opinion, the meditation calls for. Just look at it like a meal. You know, if you're really hungry, you're going to probably want to eat a little bit more. But yeah. if you're not that hungry, then the snack will do. Um, and I think that meditation, you know, as far as that time of getting into the, the actual target zone is the same. It, to me, like, I think I spend a, two or three minutes just kind of getting comfortable, like getting physically getting just how I want to be. Yeah. And uh, that should be for any, I suppose, for any 
people, person might be listening that is interested, that would be if you were in a sitting meditation position, I w- would suggest that you look at your legs and hips as a foundation. Think of it as like the foundation of a building and then the spine growing up and expressing outwards, almost like a, like a, a tree or a flower or something growing upwards. Then the body hangs, you know, the shoulders are back, chest is forward. You're firm, but but not tight. It's uh, it's like, um, um, being proud, but not being arrogant. You know, it's like that <laughs> type a good of thing. Distinction. <laughs> yeah. And then then the head just floats on top, like you literally just your head's like a cherry on top of the sundae. That's it's a good way to have a foundation because you don't want to be tight, but you just want to be firm. I that's what that's one that's one of my lines yeah well I'm, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm hearing i'm hearing snippets from releasing and now just coming back at me just done uh, on live here instead of uh instead of hearing them hearing, hearing <laughs> that's them on cool a, man on a recording yeah that's cool so you touched on this earlier and it's, it's something that i really wanted to bring up with you so you've mentioned that starting a meditation practice with a psychedelic experience in advance can change the nature of your practice by, I may be putting words in your mouth, but by giving you something to aim for. Or I, I don't know if I've taken that out of context, but that a meditation practice after having psychedelic experiences can take on a, a different kind of a different kind of role and can be viewed in a different way. Would you be able to elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, whether it be meditation or a psychedelic experience, these are really just ways to manipulate one's own consciousness. And I think that if you were to take a psychedelic, what often will happen is a person becomes more aware of their own mind, not necessarily in a good way, but they become aware of their own consciousness, aware of their awareness and their experience more, and their perception begins to become a bit more modular in that the locked in programmed ways that they saw the world and their subjective perception of it begins to shift and become malleable in such that they begin perceiving things differently and to simplify and to make that more easy to understand to someone who has not had that experience if you were to look at the classic picture of is that a vase or is that two faces facing each other <laughs> and yeah. you look at the two faces and you're like, oh, it's two faces. And then you focus on the vase and you think, oh, no, it's a vase. Well, truly, of course, it's both at the same time, but it really is in accord to how you're perceiving it at that moment. Well, under a psychedelic experience, you know, the world becomes that way in, in a lot of ways. And so that truly is just the nature of your perception becomes more clear to you. Uh, or it can, has the potential to. Meditation is the same thing. It's just a different pathway and a different, uh, you know, um, method of getting to that place. And I would say a much more stable and agreeable <laughs> and long beneficial one. I think I so, think that's a good, a very good analogy and a good thing to mention as well that the 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 stable, secure route to the top of the mountain, rather than strapping yourself into a cannon and getting fired fired yeah, directly right, right. to the top. And so, you know, getting to the top of the mountain with no context or knowledge or wisdom is kind of a wasted ticket to the top of the mountain in a lot of cases, in most cases, because, you know, you really just need experience and time and time to understand what you're even thinking and understand what you're experiencing and reflecting on those experiences before you can have, you know, a lot of benefit from 
those places. You know, I you know, personally, I did it the other way. I did against the way I'm talking about. Is it really just like smearing my brain across the you know top of the cosmos uh, and then trying to pick up the pieces and put it all back together? <laughs> that's, such <you> know? A, <laughs> that's such a destructive. But, uh, Im- image, <laughs> yes. Chasing, yes. chasing the fragments of my consciousness around the galaxy, and then hoping that I haven't missed any other way. Back right? Down. Yeah. They always have extra pieces when he puts them back together, man. Yeah. Where did this come yeah. from? This wasn't a part of me. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so, um, but but you know, and that this is why earlier I was mentioning how I had a long time to reflect on those experiences and things dawned on me, you know, 10 years later, say, like, oh, that's what I was experiencing at that moment. And now I had the time to understand it. And, you know, I think that meditation is really valuable in the sense that, well, just to answer your previous question, like, yes, if you have a psychedelic experience and then go to meditate, it can frame and give you context for what you already experienced. And then also, you will be a bit familiar with the simple state of consciousness change, regardless of the method. If once you go to meditate, you can recognize, you know, as they say, game recognizes the game. You can recognize the game a little bit. You're like, oh, okay, I know this feeling. Yeah. I know that this is consciousness shifting. So, um, but I will say, man, is that I, I have gotten to where I'm so, I'm just not really interested in, it's actually even curious to me, like, I'm not even interested in consciousness state changes of many uh, in, in, of many regards these days. Like, you know, I'm not really interested in psychedelics or hardly even alcohol, even though I do drink wine uh, several kind of a lot several nights a week and stuff like that. But I don't really even want to. I just kind of do because it's sort of like a nice social fun thing to do, and it's tasty. But I'm not looking for state changes. Yep. I don't crave or desire state Why changes. Why do you think that is? I think it's because I am so uh, into my natural flow of thinking and I enjoy my natural resting state of my consciousness more than an altered state. It's richer and more full to me than an altered state is now. Like... One could, you know, smoke, <clears throat> smoke weed and like they would get stoned and they would get giggly because things change and shift and become different and whatever to them. And then they come back down to the regular state or one could take a psychedelic and have these far out thoughts and all of this stuff and then come back. I think to me, like my resting state of awareness is more interesting to me than one of those those other skewed states feel like a downer or like they're just b- boring or confusing or like sort of just murky mm-hmm. but my resting awareness is just really pleasurable like i just like it it's like it's so much it's really fun yeah and deep and rich and there's never an end to you know the things to be thought about or the experiences to be uh enjoyed and and taken in and i you know there's a could be a lot of reasons for that, but uh, it just is what it is. I think it's a good thing that I just enjoy yeah. my my own experience. And I will say is that, especially five about four or five years ago, I was then surrounded by a lot of people who were almost marketing consciousness change a lot to others, and I never agreed with that. And 
Um, and because at the same time I was going through this, that shift I was just describing. Yeah. And what I realized if I really put away pretty much everything and then I'm not saying that I'm like a straight edge dude type of now, yep. but I find that a bite is much more satisfying than a meal yep. to me with these type of things. And I found one of the reasons why it interests me so much and I really began to seek that path was because I realized what I was just talking about as far as getting into a consciousness shifting type of space and then coming down to normal. And this could be, you know, what name, pick your poison. Yeah. But I realized always coming back down was just like, well, what is the point? What is, what, what do you, I just don't, I didn't see the utility in that because what I'm interested in is long-term permanent shifting change. One, one step forward, one step back. Right, right. And I, or, or I 20, just, 20 steps forward, 20 steps back. Like, yeah. Right. Well, even, or even more, because if you go into a, an illusory state with no context or, or no mind to observe and absorb the potential learning in that state, then it actually adds to one's delusion. Yes. And it, so it gives you even more steps back. 100%. Yet, there's the romanticized idea of evolution of your consciousness in that state. So people think that they're evolving. However, they're actually devolving and becoming really religious. Becoming attached to the narrative, aren't they, of this is my experience, this is where I am going. I'd said right. something uh, a, little bit less, um, a little bit less mindful, but similarly appropriate, I think, where I was discussing with Dominic McGregor, who is um, a recovering alcoholic COO of the UK's largest social media agency. And we were talking about the common culture amongst young people that going out every weekend and getting smashed drunk on alcohol and partying and leaving on a Friday and getting home on a Sunday night is, is very, (laughs) very common. And one of the things that I said was how overwhelming the experiences of having a lot of alcohol. And then when you add in stronger drugs, MDMA party drugs and pills and stuff like that, what blows my mind is that people travel to the other side of the planet. They'll go on a, a stag do or a birthday party or whatever. They'll travel to Thailand or Vegas or Marbella or in Europe or wherever it might be. And they will put themselves into a chemically induced state that is so overwhelming that they have no discernible uh, difference in their experience from them right. going to their local pub and right, taking the right. taking the exact same substances. And I said that when you go away and you do this to yourself, all that you're doing is electing to have a hangover or a come down in a slightly different location. And then once the hangover or the come down's gone away, you get back on it, you get transported right back to the same place, which might as well be anywhere in the world, mm-hmm. but you're in Vegas or you're in Marbella or you're in wherever and you wake up the next day and you suffer the hangover in a different in a different location. Totally. I think you just came up with a really good business idea. Because <laughs> I have have really like faux international exotic destinations like in your local area that you can go there and you know it's like a just bar. Get out of your mind. Yeah. But it feels like Thailand or something, you know. <laughs> and so then people are like, Yeah, it's pretty close. Yeah, half the price. It might might as, might as well be, yeah, exactly. It's taking but, a lot less time to get there. But I I totally agree, man. And and to me, more if I see someone who's smashed or whatever 
it just looks like suffering to me. Yeah. It looks, it makes me sad. I see someone that's, you know, passed out and spilled their drink all of themselves or whatever. And I just think it's, it's really important. I mean, man, I was, I was a, a soldier in with alcohol for <laughs> a long, long, We've long time. We've all served our time, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For a very long, never missed a day of work, you know, yeah. that one. <laughs> Conscript, um, conscription. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, um, it just, yeah, man, it just, it looks like suffering to me anyway. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, I, I think that it's, uh, it's just, uh, unfortunate, but well, it is I what run, it is, man. My, my job I've done for 11 years now, I run club nights. That's my job. I'm a club promoter. Mm-hmm. We run, a number of events in Newcastle and Manchester in the UK. And Dom asked me a really interesting question on the podcast. And he said, can you see the people that are suffering when they're on a night out? And I said, no, I I, I, I can't usually. Um, it's the people who are the most outgoing and the ones that are appearing to have the best time who often are the ones that really probably shouldn't be there and mm-hmm. really probably should put that next drink down. But yeah, you're right. The, the the suffering thing, it's it's really difficult at the moment, if I'm honest, for me to hold in um hold in the same world that I'm trying to encourage mindfulness practice. I'm currently doing six months sober um because I wanted to challenge myself last year and see if I could and I really enjoyed what happened when I did and I'm doing it again this year and I'm encouraging other people to do it, but that my livelihood is still built around a a business across multiple cities in the UK, which requires people to get drunk. And we market the drinks prices and I write the social media and I, I push the narrative. And I think for some people it's absolutely fine. And the listeners will know what I'm going to say that for, for some people going out and partying every weekend and going hard is absolutely fine. But for some people it's not for some people when they wake up the next day, the thoughts that come into their head are more than just, oh God, I'm, I feel a little bit sick. It becomes self-referential. It becomes anxiety inducing. It becomes labeling. And it, after a little while, it becomes so much a part of you. The hangover becomes so much a part of you that it's difficult to actually separate yourself from it, even when you're fine. And I think that, I think that um, mindfulness practice again helps to, break down some of the some of the little white lies and some of the fibs that you've told yourself about why you're doing certain things and i think you start to you start to assess and ask questions of yourself about what you're spending your time doing and about why you're doing it that you wouldn't have done usually i think that that can sometimes bring up some quite ugly answers actually one of the one of the guys who I mentioned mindfulness to about a year ago said something to the effect of, I really don't want to quieten my mind because I don't know. uh, I I don't think I'd like what I'd hear. And I think that that's, um, that's an interesting, an interesting idea to think about that. Well, it it is, man. I would tell that person, well, join the club, you know, you like, <laughs> join the club, man. We all have negative thoughts, but I think the, the lesson or the thing to understand there is that like you aren't your thoughts, you're what thoughts you put into action. You are not even your emotions. Emotions are things that pass through you. And so there's nothing wrong with having, you know, the negative thoughts or crazy, insane thoughts. I have them all the time. It's just a matter of if you 
recognize them and let them go or if you put them into action because you are what you act out not what you think right so meditation would you say it's not about stopping the thoughts it's about a detachment from them well not even detachment but just like acknowledgement and then being able to actually um uh, you know i heard thomas metzinger the german philosopher said it well where he's like thoughts are like a bunch of little kids in a line they're always going to be there in your mind but they'll always kind of walk up to you and want your attention and you just need to give them attention for a minute and then they'll move on and then give the next one attention and then they'll move on and every once in a while those kids will sort of uh be doing their own thing and there'll be a gap in that line and that's when you can you'll, you'll have a moment of finally have a little bit of peace yeah, but you know, regardless of if that thing that's coming to your attention is good or bad, not getting wrapped up in it is key. And recognizing that you have the ability um, to to control that, and that you also can allow yourself to let go of any potential guilt or feelings of negativity. Because I hear people say, "Oh, I'm an awful person. I just thought this." It's like, no, no, you're just a person. You and we all think horrible things. You know, I put. There's a chapter or a section of my book that I put judgment is in our DNA. That's like the title. It's this whole thing on like a kind of an evolutionary psychology approach to why I think that we all have judgment. And it's just recognizing that that's a, a part of the expression of the human mind. And then like not taking it personally, just knowing what to do with it. Yeah. It's like, it's like saying like, oh, I, sorry to be gross, but Bleh. it's like saying like, oh, I, I take a shit every day. And that makes me disgusting because shit's disgusting. Yeah. So no, no it, it's just a part of being the biological expression of being human. Mm-hmm. You just know what to do with it. If you left it in, in the living room, then yeah, that'd be gross. <laughs> but you, you, know, you, you put it where it goes yeah. and then move on. And, and then, then it's every, fine. Everyone's fine. Yeah. yeah. So you've touched on it a couple of times about the book. Am I right in saying that first, first draft's gone off? Yes. So, yes. Can so you, what what can you tell us so far? Yeah. So the, uh, it's right now. It's called "Now Is the Way," and uh, it's basically it turned into an argument against the acceptance of a given amount of human suffering. You know, there are these the the way in which we perceive and approach our world. I think uh, inherently has a, a lot of kinks and a lot of. Uh, assumed qualities to it and to re-examine your own perspective from a different point of view can really alleviate and relieve a lot of the pressure and suffering that we feel as as humans and so it deals with a lot of evolutionary psychology here and there um but also a lot of uh you know themes of consciousness are touched on and and even accepting oneself you know accepting other people uh, goes kind of deep into the self and identity and, and how to allow yourself to evolve and become the person that you'd like to be. And uh, a couple of chapters on meditation, you know. So, uh, yeah, it, it's I, it's also very, <laughs> also encapsulated humor into it too. It's, it's not dry, you know. There's definitely yeah. some moments of, uh, there's definitely a lot to think about, but uh, it's also light and kind of uh, silly in a lot of places as well. So I'm very excited about it. And you know, early 2019 is when it should be available. That's awesome. Did you enjoy writing the book? Oh, yeah. I had a, had a fantastic time. It was great. Did you find it challenging to try and pull together so many fields? You mentioned 
uh, sort of evolutionary biology, anthropology, stuff like that. Did you, was there, um, was most of this stuff kind of floating around? Did you, obviously you've mentioned that you do a lot of reading and that you've got this sort of uh, moderately insatiable desire for information. Um, did you have to delve much deeper or did you have a sort of a good framework already existing before you started? I had a good framework and I think that any, you know, creative project takes on a life of its own once you get in the flow with it. And yeah. so I had a general outline and I don't, I don't think if, if a person has everything planned out to a T then they go create the thing and then nothing changes. I think that might be wise to reassess what you've done yeah. <laughs> because the thing needs to wake up. And like a, if a piece of yourself doesn't come out of nowhere, out of, you know, out of the ether and arrive and come to life in the moment, then there's something missing. Right. But um, I had a, a general idea and scaffolding and then that evolved and, and took its own form as I continued to uh, actually flesh it out and write it. That's fascinating. I, I, I've got um, Johan Hari, the author of Lost Connections. I've got him coming on very soon. And he, he mentioned um, in, his, in his book about some of the evolutionary bases for human suffering, one of them being loneliness. And the justification and the understanding for that, for me, was so eye-opening. It was like... Um, it was like having my worldview sort of smashed apart cons mm. consistently chapter after chapter. He'd, um, have you read, have you read the book? Have you read Lost Connections? No, I'm not familiar with him at all. Johan is, uh, he's a British guy. He's, um, the book Lost Connections is focuses on depression and anxiety, the, the real causes of depression and their surprising solutions. And in one of them, he discusses about why, loneliness exists what's the reason for loneliness and he said that hundred thousand years ago let's say uh, human evolution when nomadic tribes were living living on plains and we weren't stronger than animals we weren't faster we could run them down over long distances but the real strategy the real skill that humans have was their ability to coordinate their teamwork and that the tribe was your protection it wasn't a horn on the top of your head. It wasn't you claws. It was the tribe. The tribe was your, your power. And that if you as a human being were left on your own away from the tribe, your body needed to signal to you, get the fuck back there as mm -hmm. fast as possible. And it would try and issue all of these um, physiological responses that make you yearn for contact because a human on his own is a human that's dead. And he talks about um, some studies which have been done on tribes that still live in a, a similar a similar fashion to how we would have done. And he says that there is a, um, there's a metric that you can use for measuring loneliness. And during your sleep, you'll have these micro awakenings. And you won't remember them when you wake up in the morning, but everybody has them. And they worked out that the more loneliness that someone feels, the more of these micro-awakenings will occur. And the reason for that is that if you're on your own, sleeping in a cave without the protection of the tribe around you, your body does not want to let you go absolutely to sleep. It wants you to be just on the cusp of waking up at all times as a protectionist strategy, right? So, mm -hmm. that, you're, so that you're not too deep, so that you're not 
too far away from from the animals uh, coming and waking you up and you can hear them coming from further off. And they'd done this study on this tribe and the micro awakenings were almost non-existent throughout all of them because this sense of belonging and this sense of group identity that, that was um, safe was so high that they didn't need, they didn't need these. And I thought that was a, that was really interesting, eye-opening um, explanation of why something that is so ubiquitous, so common for everyone to feel, everyone knows what loneliness feels like, right? But mm-hmm. it has its roots in our development. And for me to, you know, you've mentioned the uh, evolution, human biology element that you'll be discussing. That for me is such a, um, it's such a liberating fact to find out. Do you know what I mean? That Mm -hmm. this isn't my soul experience. This suffering hasn't just been bestowed on me. There's hundreds of thousands of years of people who've suffered it before me and there will be to come. And I think, I think that's a a really, um, a really grounding way to think about things. I agree, man. I, I feel that, uh, in the book anyway, I call that the evolutionary hangover is it's like we're, technology evolves so fast and humans evolve so slowly that we're fresh out of the jungle and we're still trying to deal with these, you know, hundred thousand, 200,000 year old imperatives, biological imperatives, while at the same time we have iPhones and the internet and all this type of thing cracking along. And so there's a tension between the lower brain and the upper brain, and we're still working that out. I think it's kind of being addressed right now. It's beginning to be addressed, and so I address that a lot throughout the entire book. One of the things I mentioned is that, like, it's just as a joke, sort of, but it is a, a strange fact is that you know, there are still Am- Amazonian hunter, or there, I'm sorry, there are still hunter and gather tribes in the Amazon. However, Amazon.com will deliver your groceries to you in two hours. <laughs> you know. <it's> like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Having again having those two things exist in the same world seems um seems very strange, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. So I wanted to ask you one final question. Have you sure. got have you got any idea of the total amount of practice time that you've undergone? Do you reckon you'd be able to work out how much time you've spent meditating? Oh man. Um let me just take, let me take a wild guess. Let me bust out the calculator real quick and think about <laughs> it. Let's see. It's, um, I'll be real. Uh, no one's going to, no one's going to fact, no one's going to fact check you. Well, I'd like, <laughs> I, I, I like to know, uh, you know, I'd like to know a real answer here. Yeah. Let's see. I'll be very conservative. Let's see. Times 20 divided by. Um, I mean, I'll just conservatively say at least thousands of and thousands of hours. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> we'll leave it there. That is, um, I've got a really interesting, I'll send you the link and I'll, I'll make sure the link is in the description. There's a, a really interesting observed change, uh, flow chart of what happens at 10 hours, a hundred hours, 500, a thousand, 5,000, 10,000 hours of meditation, anecdotal, um, anecdotal stories about what someone's uh, experience is like and also the observed changes in the brain. And Mm. I think if your experience of life is anything like 
what the 1,000 hours says, the 1 to 5,000 hours says, I think you're living a, a little bit of a, a, a different experience than I am. Um, but so to round off, where can the listeners find you online? They can just go to Corey-Allen.com. There is uh, links to my podcast, The Astro Hustle. There are articles I've written on various topics and some of my music, some of my binaural beats for meditation, uh, all sorts of things are available there. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, Corey. I really appreciate it. Hopefully we've managed to make meditation a little bit less daunting for some of the listeners. I've had a lot of messages already from people saying that they're keen to try. And if this is the push that gets them through the door, then uh, I think that we've spent, and it's been an hour very well spent. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. Thank you, Chris. And like I uh, said earlier, I, I, there should be no, there, there's nothing to fear. There is no thing to fear about meditation. It's As I said, you're doing it every night. You're doing it all the time. You just have to realize you're doing it and then point it in the right direction. <laughs> you know what I mean? Absolutely. Corey, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Cheers, mate.